0: You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop Anthology. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also uh, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow me on Twitter at OV Pod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, uh, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer, where uh, it's a monthly fee that you pay d- depending on which tier you join. Um, on Patreon, I have tons of exclusive audio content, including exclusive B-roll episodes, TV and book reviews, movie reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and early access to podcast episodes and previously unreleased content. So check that out at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Um, Yeah, so today on the show, I'm going to be discussing A Quality of Mercy. It's the 15th episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on December 29th, 1961. And of course, I will be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 23, The Strange People at Pecos. Uh, the Strange People at Pecos, by the way, is, as of this recording, available on YouTube and also on DailyMotion.com. I have a link in the show notes of this episode if you want to watch that uh, watch that episode of Science Fiction Theater. So, um, before I get into the actual episode and everything, I do have um, news uh, that pertains to uh tangentially to the show basically um so uh as you guys know i do bonus episode review series and um kind of the start of that was me deciding to review black mirror episode by episode and after three years of not having any Black Mirror content, they are underway in making Black Mirror Season 6. Um, I believe I mentioned that in a previous episode, but today, uh, as of this recording today, is July 13th, Wednesday, um, They uh, there was casting announcements. Uh, there's no information about the show itself, about Season 6, except for the fact that uh the season is believed to be longer than season 5 which season 5 was 3 episodes so that's uh, not really a um a big hurdle to clear but the casting news that hit today um the, the this cast list um runs the gamut of 3 episodes so obviously more more actors are going to sign on for the season, because there's going to be more than three episodes. But um, the casting announcements, I'm very excited about a lot of these. So we've got Zazie Beetz. Uh, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation. Papa Isidu, which I haven't seen them in anything that I'm aware of. Uh, Josh Hartnett, Aaron Paul, Kate Mara, Danny Ramirez, uh, Clara Rugard, uh, Auden Thornton, and Anjana uh, Vassan. So, like I said, there's no other information except for those names. Um, And it's interesting because Aaron Paul is, of course, uh, best known from Breaking Bad, and he also is currently, I think I stopped after season one, but currently on Westworld. And Zazie Beetz is, of course, uh, she was on... um, monkey paw productions twilight zone episode uh blurry man in season one the season one finale um so that's cool um and yeah so i'm excited i'm also really curious and excited about um josh hartnett being in it because uh i'm a big fan of his from like the late 90s and everything um so yeah so i'm excited for that to come out and for me to uh review it in a new bonus episode series so yeah um. All right. Well, that's really all the news I have. So let me go ahead and dig into A Quality of Mercy. Um, As usual, I'm going to read a plot summary courtesy of t- The Twilight Zone Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And from here on out, I'm going to be spoiling the entirety of A Quality of Mercy. So if you don't want to be spoiled, go check it out. Watch it on Paramount Plus or Physical, wherever you watch it. Um, and then come back and listen to the episode. But uh, spoiler warning, a uh, spoiler warning has been warned. So here we go with the plot summary of A Quality of Mercy. Since the war isn't going to end before dinner time, Sergeant Casarano and his men wait to see when, what can happen in a group of worn-out Japanese who are who are trapped within a cave, unreachable unreachable by heavy artillery or heavy heavy weaponry. A bloodthirsty lieutenant named Cattell arrives to take command, ordering the battle-fatigued platoon to prepare to advance on the cave. With no concern or dignity for human life, Lieutenant Cattell believes that the enemy is destined for a killing, regardless of the plea for compassion from Sergeant Caserano Before the advance can be made, Lieutenant Cattell finds himself misplaced in time. uh, Corrigidor, May 1942. He is now a Japanese lieutenant named Yamori and finds himself being ordered about by Captain Nakagawa, a bloodthirsty commander who wants to eliminate the 20 or 30 wounded Americans trapped inside a cave. Yamori pleads with the captain to have compassion for the wounded Americans, but his pleas are ignored. Returning to the year 1945, Lieutenant Cattell receives news of an atomic bomb dropped on Japan. The new orders are to fall back to see if the war ends in the next couple of days. Cattell, having worn the shoe on the other foot, agrees to fall back without hesitation. Starring as Lieutenant Cattell and Lieutenant or Slash Lieutenant Yamori is Dean Stockwell. Uh, This is his first and only episode of The Twilight Zone. Uh, And he also appeared in one episode of Night Gallery in 1973, and one episode of the 1980s Twilight Zone in 1989. Um, He just recently died in November of 2021, and throughout his career he was nominated for one Oscar and uh, received four Emmy nominations, as well as four Golden Globe nominations and two Golden Globe wins and he's best known as Al in Quantum Leap, another sci-fi show. <clears throat> that also kind of uh, interestingly enough takes an antholo- uh, anthological um uh kind of kind of format. So uh yeah, um returning for his second of 3 Twilight Zone episodes is Albert Salmi as Sergeant Casarano. Um, he was previously in execution from season one and the next we'll see from him is in season four's episode of late, I think of Cliffordville and also, uh, also appearing in this episode is Leonard Nimoy as Hanson in a very small, small role that isn't really much. Um, of course he was famous for playing Spock in Star Trek and, uh, this was his only appearance on the Twilight Zone and rounding out the cast as Sergeant Yamazaki is uh, Dale Ishimoto. Uh, this was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. And so writer for the episode was Rod Serling. And it was based on an, an, on an idea by uh, Sam Rolfe, um, which, let me see if I can find the uh, the anecdote here, the um, information. So I'm reading this from Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Graham's Jr. Um, here we go. Sam Rolf, Ralph, uh, Rolf, I don't know, Um, the co-creator of Half Gun Will Travel and future producer and co-creator of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. submitted this plot idea to Serling, who made arrangements for the purchase. Uh, Rolf was committed to submitting a script based on his plot uh, proposal, but was unable to do so, leaving Serling to the task of drafting the teleplay. This was not Rolf's only intended contribution to the series. One script Rolf was contracted to to deliver was The Calculator, uh, with the first draft due uh, contractually by May um, 8th, but that was never produced. And I'm not sure if... Um, if it was never the, like the script was never produced, like he, he didn't like, it, he didn't follow the contract or he didn't deliver on that by May 8th or whatever I said, um, or if he did deliver on it, but the, but the episode was never completed or never produced. So either, or it was never done. So yeah, um, Director for this episode was Buzz Kulick, making his 7th of 9 Twilight Zone uh, directorial efforts. Uh previously we saw his work in A Game of Pool and next we'll see is in season 4 with the episode Jess Bell. So, um before I get into my thoughts or my review of the episode, um I'm going to share basically what my what I knew before watching the episode for the first time. And what I jotted down was, I believe it has something to do with a soldier in World War II, uh, probably written by Serling, which, let's be honest, is just a safe bet because like 90-some percent of the episodes were written by Serling. <laughs> um, and I had the idea that it was similar to the Purple Testament, but I wasn't sure in what way. And going into the episode, I had no idea what the quote-unquote time, uh, Twilight Zone element was. And... I was only sort of certain that the the phrase Equality of Mercy came from Shakespeare, so I was right about that, but that's all I knew going in. So let me go ahead and dive into my review of Equality of Mercy. Okay, so the first thing that kind of jumps out in this episode is the timestamp or the uh, date on the screen of August 6, 1945, which I immediately pegged as, oh, that's the day that we dropped the bomb on... Uh, I think Hiroshima was the first one, right? Um, that's the day we dropped the A-bomb. Which is something that... And this is something I, I'm sure I've talked about on the podcast before. But that's something that it just boggles my mind to think about. Um, as someone who grew up and kind of came of age in entertainment-wise with the likes of... Like in a post-9-11 world, basically. Um, so I was... Uh, fifteen, um, in two thousand one, and that's kind of when I was kind of cultivating my my taste in movies and TV, and in the kind of uh, as I entered high school, or as I was in high school, um, that's when I kind of became uh, more into television and, and movies, and a big thing in the aftermath of nine eleven was, you know, terrorist. Um, action thrillers. I'm thinking in particular 24. 24 was like my favorite show. And a big part of 24 was the ever-present threat of nuclear war and nuclear bombs. And it was very much a fear scare tactic kind of thing and very much um, relied on the fear of of the American public and everything to, to you know, be entertaining and everything. So... um having like kind of come of age in that kind of, with that kind of entertainment, it just kind of boggles my mind to think that like, it's, it's in, it's kind of, in it's kind of incredible to think that, uh, on this planet, we are the, the United States is the only, um, the only nation to use atomic, uh, weaponry. (laughs) And, uh, that is terrifying. Um, and there's always that quote, Um, from someone, maybe Einstein, I don't know, someone who said that the, um, uh, the next world war will be played, will be played, but Jesus will be, um, fought with nuclear, nuclear weapons. And then the one after that will be sticks and stones. Um, so anyway, (laughs) so let's talk about equality of mercy. Um, I did find it interesting that it begins with the date of the A-bomb detonation, Um and I really kind of while I was watching this episode and kind of thinking about it as I was watching it and rewatching it, um I really came to respect the show's approach to to that subject matter. Um I really like that the show didn't use the A bomb as a plot surprise. It isn't like like it could have easily been like a shock thing where the end of the episode is like the reveal that oh this was August sixth nineteen forty five like this is when we dropped the bomb. And that could have been, that honestly could have been effective as a surprise in the, in the plot line, in the plot. Um, but I respect that it wasn't used for that purpose. Um, it was, it was told to us right up front with the date at the at the start. So, um we're told directly that this takes place on that specific day, and that kind of reminds me a little bit of the way that the show handled uh depicting uh dacau uh dachau dachau i- i i messed that up too in the in the episode but uh Dachau in uh death's head revisited it it doesn't shy away from it it um depicts the absolute horror of what happened there and the magnitude of it as well, um but does so in a and in, in, you know it, with the proper um respect for the dead in a sense, and with a with a proper respect for the magnitude of, of what happened and i I really appreciate the kind of uh the soft this the softness that the that the show employs with certain big big um subjects and and topics. So the next thing that I kind of honed in on in this episode after the title card or the the date uh stamp um on screen was just how quiet it was. Um we are kind of panning across this battlefield and it is very quiet. It is like there are uh, like there are some mortar shells and some explosions in the distance but it doesn't feel like that full on um, like invasion of Normandy, Normandy style, like D-Day kind of chaos or anything. It is very much like this quiet, um, very much waning days of war and fatigue ridden act of fighting um, in the soundtrack. And I thought that that was really interesting, especially because every single actor in this episode, um, save for Dean Stockwell, for obvious reasons plays their character with this just with this just extreme fatigue and exhaustion. And that that level of care in the in the um, performance is it makes it makes it shine through so well. It, it tells you exactly what uh, what the stakes are, what the energy is, what what these characters are feeling having been at war for at least in this position for i think the i think one of the characters says 24 months uh of just continuous combat and everything and you just really get a sense for that and i think that that's done incredibly well it's another example of the show uh just just exercising this perfectly economic level of storytelling really playing up the the visual art form of film to uh just depict exactly what it's intending in terms of the tone and the energy that's uh that's taking place it's just it's really really um really impressive and then the next thing i obviously caught on was oh <laughs> i put the guy from execution um albert salmi i think is uh, is that is that uh is that uh the actor's name sorry i just got a message uh okay yes yeah, so uh, Albert saw me. I immediately noticed him and I was very excited because I really liked his the, his like kind of feral like dangerous energy and execution and um watching it um or watching this episode in contrast to that performance it's just so kind of refreshing and interesting to see him play such a likable and compassionate character. I know that that's that's the that's the job like he's an actor. He's paid to do He's paid to perform, but I think that these two episodes that I've seen him in, he plays the roles so, so well, uh, that it just, it's really pretty impressive to me. And so as he's kind of talking to, um, the platoon and talking to, uh, the, through the radio to the people, uh, sending over the, mar- the mortar uh, barrages, Um, I was kind of struggling to understand his position on the radio. So I'm going to kind of talk through it and everything. So they, the platoon are spotters for the mortar barrages at the cave. The Japanese soldiers are holed up in the cave, uh, but none of the mortar firing is actually penetrating the cave. And so I I guess what he's saying is that he's, he's, he's frustrated because they're not They're just doing these kind of outside barrages uh, and explosions on the outside of the cave uh, to try to scare them out, but it's clearly not working. They're not doing like anything to actually go after them. It's kind of just in this waiting period, Um, which I think is the case. And if that is the case, if I didn't misread it entirely, um, I do find it interesting that that's that's an example of of this whole exercise, their entire, the platoon's entire duty in this position is to, uh, is to just, just hold up, wait for them to either come out or die of starvation, as Casarano says. Um, and it gives this idea that the, that this whole exercise has just a sense of uselessness and pointlessness. And I think that that's something that's very astute about the themes of war and I think partially I can't really speak exactly to Serling's intention but it kind of feels like a a level of um a, a level of depicting the futility of war the uselessness of war the uh maybe his reaction to like his war experience and everything which I also found really interesting because obviously this takes place in the Philippines and he was a paratrooper in the Philippines in World War 2 so that just gives this this episode an extra sense of just personal personal stakes for Serling, and I really like that he chose to write an episode of the Twilight Zone set in the Philippines in where the theater of war that he was a participant in and make the entire episode about compassion on the battlefield and compassion in the face of the end of the war, and basically being about humanity whether or not a a man's humanity will win out well when they have experienced you know war for an extended period of time or if uh if a, a man's bloodlust um going into war isn't satisfied if they can come back from that um so i just love the kind of themes of compassion and and uh and kind of you know mercy that's at the heart of this episode um and so my confusion with Casarano on the radio was it kind of came in uh from him asking why they can't just fire into the cave. And again, I'm not a hundred percent sure because his whole position is like, okay, they're they're defeated, they're done, why are we even bothering? But he's also asking, like, what is there, is there something against your religion about not firing into the cave? Um and I feel like he's pointing out how useless the whole thing is and it's like they're just going through the paces of it and everyone knows that the war is nearing the end, but I'm kind of curious, like, why, why is that his sticking point? Why is his sticking point to take the position that, Oh, they, they're just firing on the outside of it. Why not just put them out of their misery and fire into it or whatever, which kind of seems, I don't know, kind of counterintuitive to his, um, position in the rest of the episode but also i don't know that's i probably just misread it or something um so they determine that they're going to keep firing at the cave uh to try to smoke them out and if that doesn't work they're going to just bypass them that's what Casarano kind of says to the group um that's the idea and then that's when we kind of get oh we're coming up on we're coming up on uh the opening narration but before that um I just want to say, like, this prologue, this opening sequence is an incredible look at at the end of the war through, as the opening narration says, dulled and tired eyes. And Casarano, as he's talking to the platoon, says that he doesn't have any big yen to go in and fight at this stage of the game. And that's just, I don't know, again, the fatigue among the group is so consistent, constant, and visceral that it just really gives the sense that they've been at it for a very long time. And you just have this kind of blank or not, not blank or vacant, but this kind of distant way that, uh, Salmi kind of gives his, delivers his lines that he's like, he says like, Oh, I don't have any big yen to go in and fight at this stage of the game. Um, also I think the dialogue is absolutely amazing in this. Um, absolutely great. So, um, but, uh, but like the just kind of vacant or, or distant way that he says these, it just, it just really hammers home that whole, that whole idea that, yeah, they're done. This is, this is over. This is, we're not getting any extra points in overtime. Like they're, they're done. Um, and it's just, it's so, it's so clear, clearly present throughout this entire prologue, which is what makes, uh, Cattell's, uh, entrance into the episode kind of shake thing. makes it kind of shake things up and really, really delves into the, um, to the storyline, uh, as it, as it progresses through the actual meat of the episode. Um, so, so, uh, by the way, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I think I might be coming down with a cold, so (laughs) forgive me if I have to clear my throat, but anyway, um, at this point, before the opening narration, Casarano says that the infantrymen may be called in to take them out. Um, but again, he realizes how he recognizes how futile how futile it all is, and he says that the Japanese have already lost Okinawa and a few other places. And he says that the soldiers in the cave are tired and defeated, but don't know when to quit. And then I really like this line where he says, "There's no one in that cave to tell them the war is over for them." And that, I I don't know, something about that just really kind of hit home with me, maybe not hit home with me, but it just feels like it's kind of counter to what, you know, American media depicts, you know, the Japanese army of World War II as. Like, they are, like, I mean, <clears throat> kamikaze pilots and um, bonsai uh, infantrymen that are just, like, will come out of nowhere and and, you know like kill, kill soldiers with bayonets and everything. um, It's just this merciless thing. And it's really interesting that like American media kind of depicts the Japanese uh, soldiers of World War Two in that case. But here we have an episode that is depicting the Japanese uh, soldiers as fatigued, done and defeated and still like they're just waiting. And that's something that I found really interesting as well is that, we never see the ones in the cave. We never see the soldiers in the cave. We only have dialogue um to tell us about those characters, those defeated Japanese characters. And I think that the compassion that's shown in this episode goes a very long way, because we don't even we don't even see the Japanese soldiers that they're referencing, and we still feel this level of compassion. Um Yeah, so uh The scene kind of ends with Casarano saying that they are like he refers to them as poor guys as he 's like lifting up the binoculars and looking and i don 't know so like the the way that he 's showing compassion for the enemy shows that the the war itself hasn 't dehumanized Casarano, which is great and it honestly makes me really like and respect the character and here 's something that i 'm going to be referencing throughout this review here and there, but i 'm very curious if um Spielberg and the writers of Saving Private Ryan used this particular episode of uh, the of the Twilight Zone as a uh, inspiration for Saving Private Ryan because I see a lot of Tom Hanks' character Captain Miller in Saving Private Ryan in um, uh, Sergeant Casarano. Um, he's kind of the leader of this group, this platoon that's done and and ready to to they're tired and everything and. Captain Miller and Saving Private Ryan is the commander of a group that has to go uh, go into behind enemy lines to rescue Private Ryan to get specifically to get him home so that he can be with his mother who just lost the rest of her sons. <laughs> like it like that movie is incredible, but it also has this level of futility to it. Like, OK, the is it really a good allocation of resources for them to fish out this guy so that he can go home where while the while the war is still raging. Like is a it a better allocation of their resources to put them in in the battlefield and everything. So I don't know. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but um I do wonder if uh if Saving Private Ryan drew drew any inspiration from Equality of Mercy. Um I would think so, but I don't have any concrete uh proof. But anyway we then get the opening narration, courtesy of Rod Serling, which I will play right now.
1: It's August 1945. The last grimy pages of a dirty, torn book of war. The place is the Philippine Islands. The men are what's left of a platoon of American infantry, whose dulled and tired eyes set deep in dulled and tired faces can now look toward a miracle. That moment when the nightmare appears to be coming to an end. But they've got one more battle to fight. And in a moment, we'll observe that battle. August 1945, Philippine Islands. But in reality, it's high noon in the Twilight Zone.
0: So I really like how vague this opening narration is. Um, At the time when I first watched this episode, I still had no idea what to expect. Like none whatsoever. I didn't even know that there was going to be a new character introduced, um, after the opening, uh, narration. And again, uh, I do just found it to be really interesting that it takes place in the Philippines where Serling fought in World War II. And it just, like I said, it makes it feel like a more personal story. Um, just for trivia's sake, it was, I believe filmed at the Hal Roach Studios backlot. So, um, following the opening narration, we have the arrival of Lieutenant Cattell, and just right off the bat, we see that he is in stark contrast to the to the platoon. He's very sharply focused, and he moves with that kind of programmed energy of someone who hasn't had to improvise in a real battle, like someone who still has that um, basic training kind of drilled into him who hasn't had to, uh, kind of attune that, uh, that structure to an improvised, like battlefield, like an actual battlefield. And, uh, yeah, so he kind of still has that fresh energy from, from basic training. And, uh, so yeah, so just right off the bat, we kind of peg him as that. And Casarano, uh, gives him, gives him an overview, um, of what's going on and Cattell immediately just wants to go into the cave and kill the remaining Japanese soldiers. And right from the start, like there, like that already makes for a pretty intense episode. Like something that I found really interesting, I kind of had to wrestle with when rewatching it is that it's a full, like this episode runs the full like 50% of its runtime, which is just a very awkward way of saying, halfway through the episode is when the twilight zone element presents itself like we have an entire half of the episode just basically um depicting you know war in these characters in a very normal uh kind of dramatic episode that is free of science fiction and i find that to be pretty interesting Um, and it's something, like I said, I had to wrestle with and I kind of came out appreciating it because it is such a serious subject matter and such a serious theme to be kind of delving into that we need that. We don't need, uh, we don't need an extended like science fiction element when we have something as serious as, you know, people in war, um, to kind of contend with. So, um, as Cattell is talking to other um, members of the platoon, he addresses Watkins, uh, who's lying down, and he just kind of takes him to task. And again, like Dean, Dean Stockwell does an incredible job of playing that just very like militaristic, but not as threatening kind of kind of uh, authority figure, like someone who is in a position of authority, but has no authority behind them. So they are just lying back, or they are um, relying on the energy that they're bringing out, that military cadence and the way that they're constantly standing at attention. Um, it's like that just really... like In addition to being this show of bravado in an empty suit, in an empty uniform, really, um, in addition to that, it his energy brings brings, uh, or the energy that he brings to the role really highlights just how tired and done with the war the platoon is and how, how they are completely different. They are in completely different, uh, circumstances, uh, Cattell and the, uh, platoon. And Casarano says that, uh, they've been in the line for 33 days and haven't had much sleep. And, Cattell just kind of like dismisses it. It's like, well, I'm sorry, or you have my sympathy, but we're at a war. And when we're in a war, we kill everyone and blah, blah, blah. Um, And at this point, this is another um, Saving Private Ryan reference I'm going to make, but it it is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's an incredible movie. But anyway, uh, Cattell is this fresh face and eager to make a name for himself, uh, officer. And he reminds me a lot of Jeremy Davies' uh, character in Saving Private Ryan. He played Corporal Upham, who is kind of, uh, he is conscripted onto the, onto the group going after Private Ryan, um, because he can speak German and he can speak a couple other languages too. So he's kind of a translator and he is someone who has not seen combat. Uh, he has not seen actual combat. So it is, he's in stark contrast with the rest of the group. um, and it's it. I'm I'm I really I I have to believe that Spielberg and, and the writers of Saving Private Ryan had to had to have drawn drawn inspiration from this episode. But anyway, uh, Casarano, after giving him the rundown, and after Cattell has kind of taken some of the members of the platoon to task, uh, Casarano asks what Cattell's orders are, and he says that he wants to go into the cave and take out the Japanese and. Um, then he asks for Casarano's opinion and, uh, his first thing, this is such an interesting, like, um, it's an interesting scene depicting the power dynamic between the two men, between the Sergeant and the Lieutenant, because Casarano just says very like casually or very with, with this sense of semi authority um or at least experience that's 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 what is what he's saying it with but he uh says well first off you got to take off your your officer markings and insignia so the japanese don't kill um don't don't kill you and everything and like they had talked about how they had lost three lieutenants and um and he uh says that that's how they're going to like Like, the Japanese are relentless, and they are going to go after him if he's waving around and giving orders and everything. Um, And it just really illustrates not only how out of his element Cattell is, uh, but how battle-hardened the platoon is. It is just this very much—and again, it's that kind of distant way that Salmi— uh, delivers the dialogue, but it's this kind of like matter of fact, like, okay, well, you got to do this because of this. And it's just very like, no nonsense, just very much straight to the point. Um, and it's it's just so straightforward. And Cattell um, asks him for his opinion. So Casarano says that the war isn't going to end before dinnertime. So he thinks that they should wait it out and maybe eventually they'll have to go in, but not now. And that is kind of kind of a, a summation or or a um yeah it's it's like the summation of of their dynamic in this episode he says that there's no point in going in and Catel just wants to go in to get his hands dirty he wants to he wants to kill uh kill japanese soldiers and it's not really for bloodlust so much as it is for stature and his own pride and ego and everything Uh, which is something that they talk about in the episode. And I think they do a really great job. Again, the dialogue in this episode is incredible. And then we get Casarano's kind of first dig at Cattell in that he asks how long Cattell has been in the war. And you can see like the way Dean Stockwell plays this is so well, so so great. Um, But his reaction is like, what does that have to do with anything? Like he's very defensive and he's immediately like kind of, it gets a rise out of him a little bit. And Casarano says, well, I asked because you're playing, you're calling this like a football game. And, um, and he says, you, you have to remember, Lieutenant, you haven't been shot at yet. And you haven't shot anybody yet either. And like, there's, there's just something to be said about the disconnect between human emotions and the military itself. Um, I don't want to go on like a tangent about the military industrial complex and all of this stuff, but it's just really interesting to me how just the the kind of the whole presence and idea of like the military itself is to to break down individuals so that they can be compliant with uh, and obedient to orders and that's how the military functions like that's not really a it's not me criticizing or anything it's just the way it is like uh the military just molds its soldiers into uh <laughs> It actually reminds me of a Simpsons quote, um, where it's like, uh, there's a, there's a facility just outside of Springfield that's, that's molding, uh, murderous, uh, kill bots or something. It's called the army or something like that. I don't remember, but anyway, um... So, so yeah, I just really like how Casarano in a kind of respectful, but also not very respectful way, uh, takes Cattell to, to task and just lightly like, uh, like explains to him, like you, like you're out of your element and this is what we're dealing with and everything. So I just really appreciate the power dynamic in this episode between the two characters. And so, um, after that, um, uh, Cattell having been kind of, taken to, taken to task a little bit and his ego is a little bruised he tries to reassert his authority by demanding clean weapons in the platoon and um and he's he's trying to find authority or trying to be authoritative wherever he can and that's that just really plays up this insecurity of Cattell and how He wants to prove himself for himself, not for the platoon. Like, he wants to prove himself so that his ego can stay in check and his pride isn't hurt by his ineffectual um, experience in, in World War II. And that, like, that character dynamic, that character trait, those character flaws are what make him an incredibly dangerous individual and very uh he's kind of this threat to the platoon and everything and it's not it's not depicted as like he's not the antagonist well he is the antagonist but he's not like he's not depicted as an evil character he's depicted as this very insecure character and i think that that provides a richness to the storytelling that um that a lesser writer would have would have kind of overlooked in in writing an episode like this so um, Watkins then kind of gives um, gives Cattell kind of, he kind of follows Casarano's um, uh, kind of lead in kind of, or Casarana, uh, his lead by kind of taking Cattell to task a little bit. Um, he, because Cattell kind of had this outburst where he's like, I'm going to demand clean weapons. And when we, uh, if I say that we we're going to go in and kill some Japanese soldiers, we're going to kill some Japs. Um and so Watkins kind of gets up and he says that they've got twenty four months on on Cattell like they've been at this twenty four months more than Cattell is, and he says they that we've seen enough death to last to last us a lifetime and then some, which that just that just feels just so like authentic and true, um and he then kind of appeases Cattell in a in a in a sense he kind of um he kind of I. <clears throat> I don't know, he he kind of appeases him in a sense because he says, um, if you've got a big yen to do some killing, okay, we'll do some killing for you, but don't ask us to stand up and cheer about it. And that is just such an elegant way to demonstrate the completely opposing perspectives of the platoon versus Cattell, his perspective on the war and everything. Um, and it's another thing um, So when I when I talked about how Cattell is uh, kind of comporting himself as comporting himself is that I think that's the word (laughs) Um, so he's anyway he's carrying himself as this authoritative figure he is very much kind of a product of the military uh, basic training kind of uh, uh, beaten into shape kind of thing but in contrast to that the platoon itself is very interesting, as it's it's depicted as the singular unit. So when one person speaks to Cattell or speaks to, um, speaks to the situation at hand, it's on it's. You can tell that it is on behalf of the entire platoon. Like the entire unit is functioning as one singular unit, and I think that that's really interesting and a really really smart way to write this, write these characters and this situation. Um, and of course, I mean, Serling, I mean, he, uh, I'm sure he drew from his real life experience and everything, but, uh, it's just, it's incredibly smart writing in my opinion. So we get kind of a break, uh, to a new scene. Uh, it's nightfall and they're preparing for the attack. It's very, um, it, the, the movements of, of them as they're kind of like putting, putting mud on their faces and kind of checking their weapons and everything. It's very routine. It's very procedural. It's very, uh, methodical is the word I was, uh, I meant. Um, it's very methodical. It's very routine, but it still has that, that exhaustion underpinning it. And I think that that's really, uh, really well done, uh, visual storytelling. So Cattell then calls for Casarana. Um, and they start making their plans for attack and Cattell is still set on the, on the attack. And I, I just, I love this. This, this sequence is really, really great because, uh, uh, Casarana, uh, suggests that they skip the cave and he, again, like again, um, this scene reminded me a lot of a later scene in Saving Private Ryan. Um, when they come across a, um, a machine gun nest and they, uh, debate skipping the machine gun nest, they, they debate, debate just just skipping it and moving along and they get into this big argument over whether they should divert from their, from their duties to go after this machine gun nest, or they should move on and let some other, some other unit take care of it. Um, it's just, it's really, I love Saving Private Ryan, you guys. So I really wonder if this, like this element of the Twilight Zone in this episode of uh, Kassarana suggesting that they skip the cave um, bore any influence on the writing of Saving Private Ryan. And I believe that that's going to be my last reference to Saving Private Ryan, but God, I love that movie so much. So anyway, Cattell then kind of levels with Cassarana a little bit and says, I'm not your cup of tea, am I, Sergeant?" And again, the dialogue is just so great. I love the dialogue in this in this episode because Casarano's response is, well, you got, a, you got a bit too much vinegar for my liking. Um, and uh, and so then I think that's when he suggests that they bypass the cave. And he explains to Cattell that the Japanese soldiers are tired and defeated and they... Like, they're they're defeated. There's no point in going after them and killing them while they're, you know, the, the war is basically over. And Cattell's response is, but they're Japs. And Casarana uh, just volleys right back to him and is like, they're men. And this is such a key difference between the two men. And it's kind of the theme of the episode itself. This idea that one man is looking at, is looking at, a group of of human beings as the enemy the enemy singularly depicted as the enemy while another man is realizing that the war is over for them the these are the last days of the war it's brutal it's it's cruel it's unnecessary to go and kill people while they are likely days or moments away from being defeated anyway and so it's just really interesting because again, and I keep kind of coming back to this, but the idea that um that war and the military kind of hammers into uh hammers into the people fighting them that they they cannot be human to function as soldiers, and it's just it's such an interesting um kind of uh, theoretical or like, like an interesting theme to explore. That's the word. Um, so then Cattell, again, super insecure and very, um, ego driven and everything. He suggests that Casarana is tired. He's he's either tired or he's chicken and Casarana just levels with him. He's like, probably both. And then he starts to say, like he starts to say something something like he says um yeah and if i have to size you up and then he stops because again it's that kind of like underground or under under the surface military etiquette that he's oh he's addressing an officer so he can't say it so then um uh because he's an officer and command is command but catel is like no go ahead how how do you size me up and again (laughs) i've got to say the dialogue incredible um uh, Casarana says, you're a pea green shaved tail, fresh from some campus, afraid you won't bag your limit, um, or worse all, uh, or worse all shook up because someone may spot you as a Johnny come lately instead of a killer of men. Just like that dialogue, that is poetry. <laughs> that is so, so amazing. And the way that Salmi, uh, delivers that in this, in the scene is just absolutely great it's this matter of fact way that isn't it isn't an intimidation thing it's not he's not he's he stands nothing really to gain except to put this man in his place to keep him from putting his men in in harm's way and um and just needlessly killing other human beings it's just great i i love the dialogue there and i love the performance um and Like, even after that, like, Cattell is kind of shook by that, and he kind of starts to stop Kassarana, and I love, I love, I I have all the respect in the world for this character. Kassarana says, no, you ask me, Lieutenant, and you're going to get it. Um, And he says, like, he says, you want to prove your manhood, but it's a little late in the day, and there aren't many chances left as to how to do it. So it it all boils down to that pitiful cave with sick, half-dead losers and a platoon full of tired men. Um, that's paraphrased, I think, but, um, basically that's what he says. And I'm just like, like, it's, it's so astounding to me because it's just, it is, it is just laying out the themes and the morals of this episode just clear as day in such an elegant and kind of poetically written way. And I, I just love it. I absolutely love it. And so Cattell, the endlessly insecure, pride-driven, ego-driven um lieutenant, says that Casarana is a lousy soldier and he calls into question the entire platoon's resolve for war. And he does it as he does it in this defensive way. Like he's 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 shielding his insecurities after being called out on those insecurities by someone who he asked to size him up. And he's using, he's lashing out in just typical fashion of someone whose ego is severely bruised and very insecure. And it's just, it is so beautifully written and wonderful. Um, and Cattell kind of gets like this, he gets very, very um aggressive with it. He says that uh he'd see every enemy die, whether it's the first day of the war or the last day of the war. Um, and if he had his if he had his pleasure. He would see every single Japanese soldier die. Um, and it's just, it's it's so. It shows him as this bloodthirsty person, but really, under the surface, he is an incredibly ego-driven, prideful, insecure person. That is, that is Lieutenant Cattell to a T. Um, and so now we're at around the halfway point of the episode and that's when the binoculars drop and the Lieutenant switches places with the Japanese platoon, which is pretty similar to, um, uh, judgment night from season one. But, uh, what I found interesting as well is that he not only changes places with a Japanese soldier, but he changes, he changes places, uh, he changes place in time um, in, in place. So he's still in that same position, but he's in 1942, um, uh, May 4th, 1942. So, um, that was, to be honest, that was slightly confusing. And I will go ahead and say this right up front. The second half of the episode is not nearly as good for me as that first half was, which is so interesting to me because the thing that I love about the Twilight Zone is the way it uses science fiction in order to tell its stories and in order to, uh, depict its morals and the themes and, and the the lessons and everything, um, in, in the sci-fi format, um, but what's interesting to me is that the, the show did such a great job. This episode does did such a, a solid and great job of depicting the drama in that first half that I could have been fine with it being like a completely not science fiction episode. <laughs> um like it like it could have it could have played out as straightforward as possible, um like the silence, and I would have loved it. But anyway, um I will say that when we do get the swap and we get the reveal that they're that he's displaced in time to May 4th, 1942. That was slightly confusing. Like I had expected a a more direct swap in places. Like I thought that uh when he picked up the binoculars and he um when he picked up the binoculars and we see him as a Japanese soldier, I thought he was going to be in the cave. Um but it's an intriguing change to have him displaced in time and in the same place um, because he's transported to a time when the Japanese, a Japanese platoon had the same upper hand that the Americans did. So it is, it is fine. It's, it's interesting. It's where he gets, um, the kind of shoe on the other foot kind of thing, or walk a mile in someone else's shoes, kind of, uh, parable or fable or whatever, um, story. Um, so, uh, Cattell has now changed into, uh, Lieutenant Yamuri. Um, and he's in, uh, Casarano's, Casarano. I, I think I miss I, I've, in my notes, I have him as Casarano and Casarano. Anyway, so Casarano's, uh, position on the Japanese side. And so he is now in the position to show mercy for the Americans. And also I have to say, like, I know I'm watching this in 2022. This aired in 1961. I kind of wondered, is is Dean Stockwell technically in Yellowface? Like, is this is this technically like a, a? I don't know. I mean, he's speaking English, so it's not like an offensive thing. And and if it is, it's a different time. It's not. It's whatever. It's probably not even worth mentioning on the on a podcast. But I do think it's interesting that they did change his look uh, considerably for for the role. Um, and as much as I kind of don't really or as much as I kind of struggled with this part of the episode in terms of connecting with um, his confusion or or his swapping in place, because I wanted more of the debate uh, from Casarano and and Cattell. I wanted more of that because it is so rich with dialogue and, and themes and everything. Um, but even with my struggle with that, I felt like uh, uh, Cattell as Yomuri, his confusion is pretty solid. Um, but again... Uh, like the, um, uh, but, but coming off of such an intense first half of the episode, it makes that kind of confusion that like, oh, where am I? When am I kind of thing, a little bit tired. And it, it kind of seems like a little bit of a downturn for the episode that was built up so well in that first half. So, um, so seeing, uh, having Cattell see the threat against Americans instead of the Japanese, uh, also plays into that kind of singular dehumanizing nature of war slash being in the military, um, because the only way for him to show compassion and mercy for human beings is to see them as Americans instead of, uh, and that is kind of indicative of you know the military industrial complex thing that I kind of touched on in, in the earlier in the in the podcast because it's just seeing people for seeing seeing people as what they are like as as what they are told that they are like oh this is a Japanese soldier he is the enemy we need to kill this person no matter what stage of the war we're in or anything like we are we need to kill these people <laughs> and so the Twilight Zone has created a circumstance in which Cattell is now uh, experiencing that as seeing seeing that position from the opposite end and it's I don't know. I, I I think that this episode kind of I don't want to say it falls apart for me, but it doesn't land as hard for me because of that first half being so well done. Because what this episode says is that Um It's also not really that clear of a uh of a of a swap, really, because this is May May uh May 4th, 1942. And so like, there's plenty of war going on and there's plenty of, uh, there's like three more years of war to be fought. So at that stage in the war, they are still fighting. It's, it's still heavily, fi- heavily, a uh, heavily fought, uh, war in, uh, in that theater of war in World War II. So having, having Cattell kind of see that, oh, they need to be compassionate about, uh The soldiers hold up in the in uh Cattel asia Murray um trying to convince them that they need to show compassion because the Americans are defeated, and everything kind of rings a little bit false because at that point, like the Americans aren't defeated like there's still plenty of war to be fought and everything so i don't know it's it just kind of it kind of loses a little bit of its luster um for me a little bit, but anyway, so he argues against um going into the cave and argues tries to, tries to fight back and everything and ends up getting just kind of slapped across the face, like very, very abruptly. Um, and I thought that this was an interesting, an interesting in theory scene because the Japanese captain or the Japanese sergeant or whatever, um, or Japanese lieutenant, I guess, um, speaks verbatim the words that Cattell spoke to Casarano in the first half of the episode saying that I'll kill everyone everyone like whether it's the first day of the war or the last day of the war uh the enemy is the enemy and I like when the twilight zone does that I love when the twilight zone does that kind of just re redoes uh, or or re uh reuses lines from earlier in the episode in a different context or with a different inflection Um, but I've got to say it's not nearly as effective in this episode as it was in The Obsolete Man in season two. So it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really come across as, as that strong as a statement for me. Um, and mostly that's also mostly due to the fact that I just didn't really, um, care for the swap. I didn't really care for this stage of the episode. I didn't really care for, uh, the actual sci-fi element of the episode because I was just so, um I was so taken with the um the first part, <laughs> the first half of the episode that uh I honest and I'm so shocked to hear myself say this out loud, but I just wasn't that into the science fiction of this episode. I was just more into the straight um drama of the war in the first half. So um yeah, I don't know. So uh then uh Cattell is transported back to August 6, 1945. And at that moment, I thought, oh, he's going to he's going to call off the attack and happy ending and everything. But before he can even call off the attack, um, that's when they get the report that the A-bomb was dropped and the unit is uh, to be pulled back. Um, and the whole they're going to wait a few days and hopefully the war will end after uh, after, you know, the Japanese, you know, realize that they were uh <laughs> that an atomic bomb was dropped on them. Um and so we get this kind of close up of Dean Stockwell watching the cave in kind of the stunned silence and Casarano uh asks like what's up is something up and he says yeah something and I really like this because Casarano says um he he kind of takes the position that he thinks that he's stunned because he thinks that Cattell uh is is upset that he doesn't get to go kill anyone. And what he says, I didn't write it down exactly, but he says, um, he says, don't worry. There's, I think I actually have it in that closing narration clip, but anyway, he says, like, don't worry, there's going to be other caves, other men, other wars that you can get your killing done. Um, and then that last scene is just Cattell saying like, dear God, I hope not like, please no, I don't, I don't want that anymore. Um, and I just, I, I, I really like that. I think that it ended well, even if the kind of science fiction element of it didn't really, uh, didn't really play that well for me but anyway after that we get the closing narration which i will play right now
1: well i wouldn't fret there'll be other caves other wars other human beings you can knock off i hope not god help us i hope not the quality of mercy is not strained it droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath it blesseth him that gives and him that takes Shakespeare, the Merchant of Venice, but applicable to any moment in time, to any group of soldiery, to any nation on the face of the earth, or, as in this case, to the twilight zone
0: So that's a good closing narration, a good summation of the of the morals and the and the kind of point of the episode. And so my client, kind of closing thoughts on the episode is that, honestly, it kind of feels a little light to me. Um, the episode wears its moral on its sleeve, and the um, which is fine in that first half, but the Twilight Zone element of it, the the science fiction element of this episode, just isn't as strong as it could have been. And it isn't as strong as the dramatic narrative in that first half of the episode. So it it's a kind of it's kind of a situation where the episode creates so much goodwill and so much um so much tension in that first half only to kind of uh kind of just not I don't want to say it's not it's not like squandering it or anything it's it doesn't it doesn't ruin it or anything it's not it it's still a good episode but by introducing the science fiction element and then bringing us into Cattell's confusion and everything only to have him kind of have scenes repeated and everything does kind of take away from the tension that mounted in the first half of the episode. Um, so yeah, but it, so it's not as strong as it could be. And maybe that's the point. Um, or maybe it's kind of by design because I think that the subject is so strong and important. Um, like the, the kind of the theme of like humanity of people, like the humanity and loss thereof in war, um, is the focal point of the episode instead of the science fiction element, instead of it being about, Oh, he swaps places with the Japanese. Um, I think maybe that's, maybe that could be by design, or maybe I'm giving a little bit too much benefit of the doubt to the episode. But, um, at the end of the day, I did, I really, really liked that first half. Um, that first half is incredibly well written incredibly well performed the set design the 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 performances all around are incredible and um yeah so i i absolutely love that i just was a little bit not uh not that interested in the second half which is weird to me it's still so weird to me but anyway um, those are my thoughts on equality of mercy. Um, let me know what you thought about this episode, and I do have a few um, or a couple of um, uh, a couple of uh, a couple of pieces of trivia. Um, one is that uh, this is kind of uh, dark and everything, but uh, this episode was one of four episodes to be remade for *Twilight Zone* the movie in 1983. Um, and apparently, because I haven't seen that movie, of course, um, it's only loosely remade in this instance, uh, and it was directed by John, John Landis. And of course, I believe that that is the segment where the tragedy with Vic Morrow and the, the two young, uh, child actors, um, occurred. And then, uh, so this was Dean, uh, my next piece of trivia is that this was Dean Stockwell's only appearance on the Twilight Zone. However, he had to drop out of, um, of being in The Purple Testament in 1960 in uh season 1 um or season 2. I think season 1. Anyway, yeah, season 1. Um which is really interesting because these episodes share so like they they share a lot in common. Um and so I I just found that to be interesting. Um yeah. So uh yeah, I, but anyway, he had to drop out of The Purple Testament due to scheduling conflicts. Um so yeah so that's pretty interesting. Um those are all the pieces of trivia I have for A Quality of Mercy. Um I would say I probably prefer The Purple Testament to this episode. Um maybe i don't know i'd have to revisit the purple testament but um it is it is a it is a very well uh, crafted episode even if i wasn't too keen on the second half of it so uh of course let me know what you thought of a uh, quality of mercy and as usual i am going to Uh, close out this episode with a brief non-spoiler review of an episode of science fiction theater. This one is season one, episode 23, The Strange People at Pecos. Uh, So I'm going to uh, go into that right now. and episode 23 from science fiction theater's first season is titled the strange people at pecos uh it originally aired on october 1st 1955 and uh the plot summary is a high-strung radar ep- operator is convinced that ufos are following the test rockets he monitors at a science uh, as a oh <laughs> at a secret facility in Pecos, New Mexico. His kids' new playmate, an odd little girl who feels no pain, causes him to jump to conclusions. He's sure the child and her family are spies from outer space. This episode was directed by Eddie Davis and written by Doris Gilbert and stars Arthur Franz, Franz, uh, Doris Dowling, Barry Froner, Andrew Glick, and Dabs Greer. Um, So yeah, so I'm going to go into my non-spoiler thoughts as I wind down this episode of Anthology. Um, Yeah, the pre-show segment with host Truman Bradley um, had this really interesting, not uh, vaguely interesting, um, kind of experiment or thought thought experiment where he talks about how um 50 years ago we could travel we it would take um a lot to travel from one distance to the other and now oh no 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 that's what it was um 50 years ago we couldn't have fathomed sending sound into outer space or sending uh sending frequencies out into outer space but now science can do that um, and the kind of idea is what about um, sending maybe in 50 years we'll find a way to send matter across space and he explains that that's what teleportation is this this crazy idea is teleportation and then he brings us into the episode and the episode itself is pretty solid kind of kind of similar to um, a visit from Dr. Pliny from last week, this episode deals with some interesting kind of social commentary and um, the folly of humanity in uh, when they are encountered by or feel like they are uh, in the presence of um, intelligent beings from, you know, the other, from, from outer space. Um, it's not done with as deft a hand as the twilight zone would be of course but it's done pretty well it's done solidly enough um the kind of central drama that's depicted in it and mystery kind of arises from uh the neighbor the new neighbor's little girl comes over to play with the with uh the main character's kids and they're playing baseball he and like she asks like oh well you know you can uh why don't you move the ball with your mind and everything and she's depicted as kind of a strange kind of odd little girl and i've got to say this like there is one line that <laughs> um so when when he when the scientist uh at the uh, at, the, at the at the center of the story, when he says, <laughs> when he asks like, "Where are you from, little girl?" and she says, oh, "I'm from the third planet from the sun," um, like he he's like, "What? Why is she saying it like that? Like, what? Why is she saying why? Like, why say that?" And like he it, because of these like flying saucers is, or these un, unidentified flying objects that are showing up on his uh on his readouts when he's when they're testing this rocket um he jumps to the conclusion that she is from outer space and there's a moment not to spoil the episode but there's a moment where he's piecing information together and he's he's like well why did she say that she's from the third planet from the sun and then <laughs> and then someone like points out to him that that's earth and this man who is a scientist in this show says mercury venus earth she's from earth. (laughs) Like it's (laughs) like, I was just like, okay, come on. (laughs) That's I, I am usually like, I I feel like I've, I've really gotten to the point where I can forgive dated media and I can forgive some aspects of, you know, like movies and TV from the past because it's of an era and everything. It's a time capsule. But that is really silly. <laughs> like that is incredibly silly, um, incredibly silly writing. But what makes up for that is the 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 way that the kids are written. So the uh, the two young boys of the scientist in in the uh, episode they are very obnoxious, <laughs> um, very obnoxious, very annoying, and they bully. The little girl very, very harshly. They scream at her. They say that she's a freak and that she's a Martian and she doesn't belong here and and she needs to go back to her home planet. All of this stems from her getting hit by a car and uh, not feeling any pain from it and then walking home um which kind of comes into play later it's the like she has a medical condition or she's from outer space who knows you'll have to see the episode because i'm trying not to spoil it and i'm trying to really make up for the fact that i basically did just spoil it but anyway um it's they they are very very like they are harassing her and everything and it feels like it's it's very much of a time of the era like it feels like it is Um, it feels like, it feels like it is a reference to, you know, uh, like the Red Scare and everything of the time and, um, different prejudices that were, you know, very much, uh, fashionable and at the time. So maybe there is some social commentary there, but obviously it's not as well drawn as it is in the Twilight Zone. Um, but it, I commend them for going for that and, and going for it. Um, another thing that I really liked about this episode, um, for a couple of things, one, and this isn't anything necessarily about the actual production of the, of the episode, but in my DVD collection, um, my, the complete series of science fiction theater, which I've said before, unfortunately that, uh, that set is discontinued and out of print, um but i'm glad that i have it i just sucks that other people can't get it um <laughs> but um when you go to the menu and you and you play an episode it says or like when you load up each disc it says the following episodes were uh were mastered from the best available sources so obviously this is an old tv show this is an old show that that wasn't probably likely wasn't archived properly the negatives weren't they are working from negatives if they are even working from the original negatives they're working from some source that is not the best and i've got to say this episode in particular is maybe end of the whole set and and they're not unwatchable by the way they're not they're by no accounts are they unwatchable like the sound is there the the you can clearly see everything like it's it's a respectable transfer um, it's just not obviously not high def or anything, but I would wager a guess that it looks better than it did in 1955 um, on television. Um, so there is that. But um, this episode does look like the cleanest in terms of the negative and and the actual vid- video quality. And I'm really happy to say that because for a kind of nice change of pace, there's a there's a decent amount of scenes in this episode that actually take place outside. And I say that in such a way, I I say that as someone surprised by it, um, because so much of the show up to this point has been like in offices, in indoors, on a soundstage, um, interior uh, scenes that are clearly the exact same, like they don't do much to to change the set design or anything. So it was really refreshing to see these uh, scenes play out um, outside, like kids playing, uh, kids playing, uh, with a baseball, um, and kids like looking into, into people's windows and everything. It was, it was really nice. It was, it was good. Um, it was good video quality, um, and, and a good kind of refreshing thing. And it really kind of made me feel like appreciate the the show a bit. And I kind of hope that there's more, more variety in that respect, um, going forward, but, Overall, I would say that A Visit from Dr. Pliny was probably the better episode, because I, I really did enjoy that episode last week. But this is a respectable um, kind of follow-up for that. Not that they're connected in any way, but it's a respectable um, addition to the to the show. Um, yeah, and it ends in such a way that it kind of has this, um, this kind of silly, like, it, it is trying to tell this moral at the center of it, and it's trying to tell this um, very distinctive, like impart this lesson at the end, which is great. It's awesome. It's fantastic. But then it kind of ends in a way that's like, but also what if, like, what if, what if this is really what's going on? It kind of that undercuts any kind of social commentary that it could have been making. But I mean, I can't really complain because I was actually pretty impressed with this episode, even though the kids, that in particular, the kids that played um, the scientist's uh, children were, (laughs) the acting was not good. (laughs) It was, it was really like, they, they are playing obnoxious children, like by design, they are obnoxious, but it's like, they take it to 11 and it's, it's very much like, okay, maybe, maybe coach them a little bit and do like another, maybe one extra take um, before you call it a day, but they didn't. And what we got is only passable. So uh, those are my thoughts on the strange people at Pecos. Um, Let me know what you thought of this episode. And if you watch science fiction theater, um, like I said earlier in the episode, um, someone out there on the YouTubes has uploaded the episodes to YouTube. So for now, right now, they are still available on YouTube, um, so go seek them out. But a lot of them are available on DailyMotion.com. Really, all you need to do is just Google "science fiction theater" and the episode title, and the video should pop up, or a link to the video should pop up. Or just check the show notes of this episode or any episode, um, and I should have a hopefully still good link um, to the video. But um, but yeah, as always, I'm like I I really feel like i'm i i kind of feel like i'm kind of shouting into the void about this show but it also i i just i have this feeling that i i don't want it to be lost to time and it's such a bummer that the dvd is discontinued and everything because i want people to see this show i want people to watch this show because it is a precursor in 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 uh, certain respects to the twilight zone and the outer limits and even black mirror and everything Um, also it's George McFly's favorite show. So, which by the way, we are coming up on the episode, uh, soon enough here in probably like eight weeks or so. Uh, we're coming up on the episode that, or no, probably like six weeks. Um, we're coming up on the episode that was aired the night of the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. So anyway, I'll talk about that like an idiot when, when I get to it. But anyway, um, yeah. So so yeah. Please, if you if you listen to the show and you haven't checked out Science Fiction Theater, I do recommend going and, and watching it. Uh, just because it, if you're listening to this, if you like the Twilight Zone, if you like science fiction, this vintage science fiction show is definitely worth your time. So, um. That will just about do it for this episode of Anthology. I do want to apologize that this is coming out a couple of days later than I intended. I've been trying to hit uh, releases on Wednesdays for Anthology, but I just kind of didn't get it Uh, like (laughs) it came down to uh, I'm recording this Wednesday. I'm posting it Friday. Last night, I was prepared to record this episode, but it would have it would have kept me awake past like 1am. And I was just like, I can't, I just can't, um, (laughs) I can't in good conscience, uh, do that. But anyway, so it's out, it's out now and everything. I will say that if you join Patreon at the, uh, at any level, you'll get early access to episodes of this and uh, of this tower junkies and the obsessive viewer. So I'm recording this Wednesday night patreon got access to it thursday morning and the rest of the world gets access to it friday um but uh yeah so anyway consider checking out um patreon at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer at the five dollar and above levels i've been doing what i'm dubbing sci-fi duos uh like double features of uh just me talking about science fiction um movies so Last week, to pair it with um, my review of, oh God, what was that episode? (laughs) Uh, Five Characters in Search of an Exit, I did a double feature review of, um, oh God, what was it? Um, Identity and, oh, um, Identity and Cube from 1997. Cube was a movie, a science fiction movie um, that was inspired by five characters in search of an exit and identity kind of has a similar type of storyline. Um, that's about, you know, people trapped in a place and not able to get out. So I did a little like double feature review of both of those to kind of complement that this episode, uh, or this week I did a, uh, pa- what I'm calling Patreon potpourri sci-fi duos um of the two new release sci-fi movies duel from riley stearns and um after yang which oh after yang i will say is the first new release movie of 2022 that i rated five stars out of five so uh consider checking out patreon patreon.com slash obsessive viewer if you want to get those reviews sign up at the five dollar and above levels five dollars gets you all of that plus book reviews movie reactions um uh b-roll episodes, um early access to content, all of that stuff. So anyway, check that out. I'm gonna start playing myself out. So uh so yeah, I just want to say once again, uh, thank you guys so much for listening and um hope you guys are having a very nice and safe summer. And uh yeah, I'll be back hopefully next week. I've been doing good about being weekly on this, but next week with nothing in the dark. And uh until then, I wanna just say thank you guys and uh I'll see you in the next episode. And now here's a short clip from our Patreon exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com/obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. And so that, that like I'm com- kind of coming to severance with that that idea, those ideas kind of fresh in my mind and it's so interesting the way that it is dealing with that type of kind of disconnect between work and home life um, like the kind of big big, uh, the big thing about the show is that bifurcation the delineation between the memories of the person at home and the memories of the person at work and I just I find it to be such an interesting introduction to that concept because we are slowly brought into it when he is this podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com You can find links to all of our shows at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.